Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 this morning. I have entitled this message, The Guilt of All Men, because that is really what it's all about. After Paul's opening words in chapter 1 and his condemnation of men for the rejection of the light of God in creation, and then after he deals with those people in chapter 2 that felt like they're so morally good, they're exempted from any judgment against such people. He went on to deal with the Jew who, of course, thought all Jews were going to heaven and all Gentiles were going to hell. He has shown that the law of God is written in men's hearts and that it is also written down on paper for the Jewish people. And thus all are in one way or another under the law. He brought out the fact that when the Gentiles do by nature the things contained in the law, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. So at the end of this passage, when he says that all are convicted by the law, you can understand that either the law is written on the heart and God holds you accountable for that, or if you have the scriptures directly in front of you, you are even more accountable. And thus he has been quite hard on the Jews and heading them off at the pass. And also as a a great pastor, shepherd, and liberator evangelist, he was wanting to free them from the very things that bound him before his conversion. He was so deeply entrenched in his religion that it was keeping him from heaven. So in looking at this, the guilt of all men, I want to open by relating to you an account from ancient history and Greek mythology, there was a king by the name of Mycendius. He was the king of the Etruscans. And he was known by his contemporaries as a detestable, cruel, and fearful man. This man was said to be by the ancients so cruel that there was absolutely no torture that entered his mind that was too horrible to gratify his vengeance or to serve justice when he felt it was due. He would do absolutely anything. One of the methods that he used for execution is actually pretty ghastly and pretty hard to imagine. He would take an individual and he would tie him to a dead person so that he would be bound hand to hand, face to face, lip to lip to this dead body and left in that wretched condition. Until as the dead body began to rot and decompose, it began to eat into his own flesh, hand to hand, lip to lip, so on, until he finally rotted away and died himself. Uh, Virgil gives an interesting account of that practice in the Aeneid, so there's something of some substantiation for that in history. Paul, in writing to the Romans, you remember in Romans chapter 7, when at the end he said, Oh, wretched man that I am, looking at the sin within him. He said, who will deliver me from, what did he say? This body of death. And many people believe that he was reaching back to the account I've just given you of that analogy and seeing it as the new man in Christ still trapped in this humanness and looking toward the day of ultimate deliverance from this body of death. In other words, that is all to say that Paul, in writing this account in front of us, saw sin as a very powerful and very polluting reality. He saw it as something offensive, something that was to be deeply desired, to be thrown off, to be gotten rid of. And until you see that in your own life, nothing for you will ever change. 
When we come to Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 20, we have the conviction of all men as being under sin. And when the Bible speaks of under sin, there's only two categories you can be in as a human being. God doesn't look at you and, and weigh out whether you're a good person, whether you're a nice-looking person, whether you have a good personality. God looks at you only in these two respects. Are you under sin or under grace? He says all are under sin. And he lays out his argument as uh, a great lawyer in the courtroom. And by the time he's done, you would have to be literally out of your mind to stand back from this passage and say, Oh, come on, man isn't really like that. Oh, come on, really, man is basically good after all. Come on, man really can find peace. To come to that conclusion at the end of this passage would be to declare your own insanity, I believe. The, the argument is so airtight. So let's read the verses. Verse 9. He says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged, both in all that he's taught so far, both Jews and Greeks, as all under sin. Under sin. Lost. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. And then for that person who says, yeah, except me, he goes on to say, no, not you even. Not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps or the adder snake is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. The fear, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. And I've just explained to you that he's already shown that the law is written on your heart, as well as the Jew having the law written down that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for here's the purpose of the law, to show the knowledge of sin and drive you into the arms of an everlasting, ever-loving, forgiving God. Now, basically, as you run through this passage, and I want to move quickly, thought by thought, you have here the condition of man. You have obviously, in looking at his mouth, his conversation... You have his conduct, which is so evident around us in the world today. And you have the cause, and then you finally have the conviction that all men need Christ. Let's talk about the condition here to begin with. And I want to begin by really citing what this is saying, if we could make it as simple as possible. What this is saying is that all men are not basically good. Men like to believe that they are basically good. That is especially popular today. And that belief is continually reinforced by psychologists and counselors, unconverted pastors, men in the pulpit that do not preach the word, excessively user-friendly churches that are after getting bodies into buildings rather than people into heaven. And thus you have a widespread constant bombardment to the human heart and mind today and reinforcement of this idea that men like to believe they are basically good. But all men are not basically good. And all men and women, we could say, have, in the truest sense, real heart problems, spiritually speaking. The idea is that deep in his heart, 
Every man and woman knows there is something wrong. Deep down inside of you, you know there is something wrong. Doesn't matter how long you've lived your life, you know there's something wrong. And what that equates to in practical, everyday experience, in your mind, in your conscience, in your heart, what it equates to is what we call guilt, what the Bible calls guilt. To talk about guilt is to talk about something you feel. Guilt is something that you feel. And you feel it for a couple of reasons. One, you feel guilt for what you have done. Regardless of how much you try to blame others or who you try to blame for that feeling, guilt is felt in the human heart for what you've done that you know is wrong. If God has, through His Spirit, if nothing else, come to each human being and confirmed His law to the heart, if in the conscience there is certainly that work, we all know what right and wrong is effectively in one way or another. So you feel guilt for what you've done, and you all know what that is all about. But you also feel guilt in life for what you have become. Because I think that there is inside of all of us, outside of Christ, unsaved, there is inside of every human being, a sense that you're to be something in life. And every person has their own understanding, of course, of what normal is. And so we are guilty for what we've done and we are guilty for what we've become because you find that sin turns you into something you never thought you would become. And there is no one exempt from that. There's not one person on earth today who has been turned into other than what sin has made them. The reason people pay so much money to go to these self-help seminars, the reason you have these overnight success guru types that get on cable TV and sell their seminars and their tapes and look so positive and up and fresh and all of that and happy without Christ is that people are looking for a way out of being what sin has made them. The reason these so-called success positive thinking gurus come and go is because in the end it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It might help you for a little while. It may give you a temporary escape. It may have you feel like you've become something that you wanted to be rather than what sin has made you. But you cannot escape it and you cannot escape the guilt. You cannot just shove it away. Think about it in your own life. You can't just take guilt and shove it away. A popular newspaper advice columnist once wrote, One of the most painful, self-mutilating, time and energy-consuming exercises in the human experience is guilt. It can ruin your day, it can ruin your week, and it can ruin your life if you let it. It turns up like a bad penny when you do something dishonest, hurtful, tacky, selfish, or rotten. Never mind that it was the result of ignorance, stupidity, laziness, thoughtlessness, weak flesh, or clay feet. You did wrong and the guilt is killing you. Too bad. Now here's the great advice. But be assured. That the agony you feel, she concluded, is normal. Here's the sum up wisdom thought. Remember, guilt is a pollutant, and we don't want any more of it in our world. And with that, she went on to another subject. Quoted, of course, from Ann Landers' Encyclopedia. You understand that. 
The idea is you cannot just shove it away. You can't just say, hey, it's something we all have to deal with. Don't think about it. You can't. You can't approach it like that. Even the ancient Roman philosopher Seneca once wrote that every guilty person is his own hangman. It's something that is there. And no matter how often you tell yourself that you're good, no matter how often you think about all the reasons why it's not your fault, you still do wrong things and you still feel guilty about it and you still look at your life at what sin made you and you realize it isn't what you wanted to be and you feel guilty about the whole thing and there isn't a thing you can do about it outside of Christ. It is something you feel it is there. Further, it is something that drives you. Guilt is something that drives you. What does it drive you to? Well, you know already, alcohol, drugs, despair, insanity. It's been said more than once by the psychiatrists that work in the mental hospitals that if they could just bring a true sense of forgiveness to their patients, they could empty out three quarters of the hospital overnight. It drives you to insanity, and more and more frequently it's driving people to suicide, isn't it? Guilt is very real, and you can play psychological games. You can blame your environment. You can blame the era in which you were born. You can blame the household in which you were born. But you can't escape the fact that you feel guilty. In fact, if you think about it, in our society today, we have more sophisticated resources, psychologically speaking, with counseling and books, to seem to service the guilt level of our society. But our society seems to be even more guilt-ridden. And people want to get rid of their guilty feelings, but they don't know how. And the more you probe for a solution, the more frustrated you are because nothing works. And thus, the more guilty you feel. Now listen very closely to what I'm going to say right here. Men feel guilty because they are guilty. And that's just the facts. That's what the Bible says. You feel guilty as a human being because you are guilty. And it's because you're a sinner. You see, the guilt feeling is only a symptom of the real problem, and the real problem is sin. So whether or not today you believe in Christ or not, you feel guilty because you are guilty. And if you've slid by all this time in your life and thought, well, I am basically good, the Bible knows you already. It says every man's cause is right in his own eyes. But God ponders the heart. All the psychological counseling in the world is never going to relieve you from guilt. Only temporarily can superficially let you place the blame on someone else. But in the end, you have to face this reality. You're a sinner and you feel guilt because you sin and because of what a lifetime of sin has done to you. And to then try to shove it off on someone else only intensifies the guilt because now you've added dishonesty to all the other sins. So that's the condition of men. Guilt is something that you feel and guilt drives you. But you see, guilt is something that has one cause, sin, and thus it has only one cure, Jesus. Because Jesus alone died for your sin. That is why the first element of the gospel has to be to tell you that you're a sinner. Have you ever wondered why Jesus, when he opened up his public ministry, in the Bible, the words we have recorded, the very first word is repent. The first preaching Jesus did recorded in the Bible begins with the word repent. He didn't begin his ministry and say, are you lonely? 
He didn't begin his ministry and say, have you just gone through a divorce? He didn't begin his ministry by saying, do you have a drug problem? He began his ministry by saying, you're a sinner and you need to repent. And then he began to invite people to repent and to come to him and be forgiven. The first element of the gospel has to be a confrontation of sin. To say gospel is to say good news. But what's the good news? The good news is to find freedom from your sin which has caused all of that guilt. And thus the gospel is about salvation. It's a rescue operation from sin. And that is why Paul, who many have said wrote the greatest and final gospel tract when he wrote the book of Romans, begins with sin. And he spends so much time on it, all the way now to three chapters, heading off every argument and objection because you cannot be saved until you admit you're a sinner and you will not come to Christ until you feel the sense of conviction for your own sin and admit that you're a sinner. Otherwise, what's the good news? It isn't good news until you already know the need that you have as a sinner. And then the gospel begins to be the sweetest thing to you you have ever heard in your whole life. Hebrews 9.14, I love this, says, How much more then? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience, cleanse our conscience from the acts that lead to death, which is sin, that we may go on and freely serve the living God. That's the answer to guilt right there. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. Are all men basically good? No. If you're still fighting that thought, look around the world today and ask yourself, is the world basically a peaceful place? No. Is the world basically a good place? No. Do people basically do good things naturally? Go to all the overcrowded prisons in the world and walk up and down the aisles and look in the cells and ask that question again. The answer is no. Men are not basically good. And thus, because God created man in his own image and man rebelled against God, and man is not basically good, but as a sinner, all men are brought before the judgment bar of God. And the Bible drags in the entire human race right here and sets them before the judgment bar of God. And we see in this passage, more than any other passage in the Bible, that reality. Look at Romans 3.9. We're just sailing right along here into the text. Romans 3.9. He says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks, they are, what's the next word? All. How comprehensive is all? It's all. All under sin. What Paul does here then, and when he says, as it is written, he isn't just saying bad things off of his heart about the human race. He goes to the Old Testament scriptures and he brings the Bible now to verify and reinforce everything he has said to this point. And every statement comes from the Word of God. When he says, as it is written, he reaches back to the Old Testament. He pulls forward to right now all these statements and he marshals them together. It's an old standard way of rabbinical teaching. To take a string of scriptures, of verses, and string them together. It was called a karaz, meant a string of pearls. And he marshals together the Word of God to hammer home his point. And it's really in an irresistible way. So he says in verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Can you just turn in your Bible to Hebrews right now for a moment? Hold your thumb there. Compare with what we have in front of us in these verses to this statement in Hebrews 4.12. 
you can begin to suddenly appreciate this section for what it is here for. Romans 4.12, Paul says, as it is written, and he lists off all these things, there's a reason he does that. He understands how powerful the Word of God is. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. How sharp? Well, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Why does Paul bring together all of these scriptures from the Old Testament as it is written and then he lines them all up? Because what he is doing is he is putting together the sharpest, most penetrating, soul-dividing, thought-discerning argument to penetrate even the hardest heart to drive all men into the arms of Christ. But especially you today, if you've never come to him for that forgiveness. All men are brought before the judgment bar of God. To go back to Romans then, all men, we could say here, are passed under God's spiritual x-ray. When it says in verse 11, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. He basically goes on now and just shows what is in man's heart. And what is there is ignorance. Ignorance of God himself. Man living in the darkness is, of course, ignorant of the light. And so he says, there is none who understands. Then he says, there is none who seeks after God. That is indifference. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. What a statement. Think about that. Think about it hard. I mean, what about all the religions in the world? How can he say that? There is none who seeks after God. What about all the sincere Buddhists? What about all the sincere Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses? What about all those that follow Swami Pravananda Yogananda? Banana, banana, she wrote a Honda. You know, and these yogis. What about all these people? I mean, aren't they just on another path that leads to God? No, because the Bible declares that there is none who seeks after God. That statement all by itself, coupled with the one there is none who understands, those two statements are so sweeping as to encompass every religion and every person in every religion. It's one thing to be without the gospel and to be in a certain religion. It's another thing to be in a religion and hear the gospel, hear the truth and reject it and stay in that religion, saying, you have your religion, I have mine. It's one thing to just be over here and have never heard of Christ. It's another thing to have it biblically laid out to you and to reject it. That is to say that all people like that are not seeking God. So the most devout Mormon, and I grew up Mormon as a very young child. My whole family tree on one side is Mormon. So if you're offended by that, you know what? The Bible offends you on a lot of issues to bring you to the fact of your own sin to save you. There isn't a a Mormon seeking after God that remains a Mormon when they hear of the real Heavenly Father and the real Holy Spirit and the real Jesus and the real heaven. And so it goes for every religion. There is none who seeks after God. And all those that would ever have a problem with the doctrine of total depravity must stare at their Bible and deal with this because it says there is none who seeks after God. And what that means is you didn't seek after God. Years ago, there was a great campaign all over the country that said, I found it. 
And there were signs everywhere. It was all about Jesus. And I understand the motive of the campaign. It, it was just to, to alert people to Jesus and get them saved. But the truth is, you didn't find it. In the final sense, it's not it anyway. It's Him. And He finds you. And here's the beautiful thing to me. There's none who understands, and there's none who seeks after God. There's all this indifference and ignorance. And yet, to realize that, and then to realize, but, oh man, I've, somehow I've come to the place where that's all I care about anymore. Well then, you've been touched by God. That is to say that God has come to you and already shown you His love. He's already been working on you. You don't find Him, He finds you. If you're here today longing for God, if something just drew you here, so often I hear the testimony in our church that I just, I was driving so long every week to come. I wasn't a Christian. I, I didn't even know why I would do such a thing. But I'm born again now and I know the Lord and now I know why. He was drawing me. Yeah, that's right. If you're seeking after God today, it's because He has come to a heart that wasn't seeking God. He has come to a heart that was fully indifferent. And He has awakened your heart and He's drawing you with the cords of His love. It is the work of God that brings a heart like Job's to say, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. It causes the psalmist to say, as in Psalm 42, 1, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Is that your heart today? It's because of God then. It's because of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 63, 1 says, Oh God... You are my God. Even early I will seek you. Why? Because my soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Do you realize how much work the Holy Spirit has to do in your heart to take you from absolute ignorance and absolute indifference to where you could utter those words? Does that say anything to you about the love of God in Christ? who is willing that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. If you've ever had any doubt that God loves you, then ask yourself if you, in the deepest part of you, long for Him. And if the answer is yes, then there is no question of how much He loves you because He's already done so much to get you to even long. The work of the Spirit against the indifference of man. It's the love of God and Jesus Christ. If you find yourself seeking Him, it's because He has drawn you. He's indifferent. But then the Bible says here that man is crooked. The whole human race is crooked. They've all gone out of the way. They've all turned aside. And that isn't anything new. In Isaiah 53, 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Do you remember our study on sheep? We had it a while back in First Peter. Sheep wander off and they have no sense of direction. They do not come back. God likens the human race to sheep. And all human beings have gone out of the way. There is a crookedness and a rebellion. What that does is leads us to the next thought in the text, which is unprofitableness. They are unprofitable. The word literally there in the text, the original word carries the idea of, and it was used for, milk gone sour. I mean, just think about the human race. Just think about yesterday's news. As God looks at the human race, and as He ponders how he created man in his own image in the garden, perfect, put him in a perfect paradise, gave him perfect, unhindered fellowship with himself. 
created in his own image for his purpose, God sees the human race as milk gone sour. It's absolutely now good for nothing. You can't make butter out of it. You can't take the cream off the top and mix it with some other milk and make half and half for your coffee. God looks at the human race and he says it's absolutely unprofitable. It's like milk gone sour, utterly worthless for the purpose I intended. And then he said there's no goodness. Romans 3.12, he says, They have all turned aside. They have altogether become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. Now, there are always those people that want to say, No, I do good. I'm a good person. And they would love to give their defense of how good they are. Well, let me say this. You might be better than some. You might, if the truth were known, be worse than some. And you may do, quote, good things. And there's certainly a lot of people that are not Christians that give to charitable causes and so on. But any good that any human being does, the Bible declares in this x-ray, it shows the truth that it's for self-benefit. Nobody does good just because they're so wonderfully good. Not one. Not even you. It's a very interesting thing in the book of Numbers. Can you turn your Bibles? Hold your thumb right here to the book of Numbers, chapter 15. It has to do with the, the way God told the children of Israel to dress. There were very specific rules about how they were to dress. Numbers 15.37, God's talking to Moses, telling exactly how he wants them to dress. And he brings up this whole issue of self and God says to Moses in 1537, then at 38, he says, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corner of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. So down on the corners of the garment, there were these tassels. Remember when the woman was pressing through the crowd to get to Jesus, and she thought, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, what she probably grabbed was one of those tassels just swinging as he walked. And God said, I want a blue cord on each tassel. And in verse 39 said, and he said, you will have these tassels to look at for a reason. So you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them. And the NIV says, not prostitute yourselves by going after the lust of your own heart and your own eyes. In other words, you're so bent on self that I want even in the way that you dress, I'm going to put something to remind you of me and my ways so that as you seek me, I can be the author of the good in you so that the good that you do really is good. There's, there's good good, which comes from God, and there's bad good, which comes from you and I. In other words, but even in the way they dressed. Philippians 2.21, Paul says, All seek their own, not the things that are of Christ. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord ponders the heart. That verse right there, I think we would all do well to put on the rearview mirror in our car. Because maybe you wouldn't cut so many people off if you read that verse. Or maybe you wouldn't speed on the highway if you read that verse. Or maybe you wouldn't do the things you do, or maybe you wouldn't give the arguments you give, or maybe you wouldn't think the thoughts that you do because, you see, 
Man is so self-centered that he's got an argument for every bad thing that he does. Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord ponders the heart. The Lord has the x-ray eyes, and this passage is an x-ray to show you and to show me our desperate need for God. There is none good. That's the condition. Then he moves to the conversation. Look at Romans 3.13. And now he begins to describe, it's like God looking into the throat of man, and he describes it like an open tomb or an open grave. The thought is... Not of a tomb with bones in it that you might go visit on an archaeological dig. The thought is of a tomb where a body has been laid and now it's rotting. And it's opened up and the stench of the rotting body is sort of wafting out the door of the tomb. Much like what Jesus would have faced going into the tomb of Lazarus in the hot Mediterranean climate as he had been in there for four days as a dead body. Remember the old King James, what it said? Lord, by now he what? Stinketh. We all know that verse. We don't know any others in the Bible. So the Bible says that that by now the human race stinketh. So that out of the mouth of fallen man comes the stench of spiritual death. That's the point. Man's spiritual death manifests itself through the mouth. That's why children secretly, even not being taught to, are given to toilet talk, right? You remember toilet talk? You'll never forget toilet talk. You know why? Hollywood is bent on toilet talk. Just look at the movies that go by at the Oscars. Some of them could just, one in particular I'm thinking of where they gave so many awards, it's filled with toilet talk. And that's because of the heart of man. Out of the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The throat is an open grave. The stench of spiritual death is manifested in the mouth. Then he moves to the tongue. He looks at the tongue. He says, their throat is an open tomb, and with their tongues they have practiced deceit. Is that true? Do you know anybody that has never done that? Have you ever bought a car? Then you know what I'm talking about. Have we got a deal for you? By the time it's all over, it's been the fight of your life just to get out the door. Practice deceit. Have you ever told a lie? No. Now you've lied, you see. Tongues have practiced deceit. Look at the governments of the world today. Look at all that goes on. Do we really know what's going on? Look at what we hear in the news. Do we really know what's going on? What we do know is that all wars have been fought secretly behind the scenes about money and power exchanged between the, the countries that maybe at the very heart of it are not even at war, at war with themselves, but they want to make money from the war machines. They've practiced deceit. The human race is altogether deceitful. In the Proverbs in uh, chapter 7, can you turn there? There's an example of this, just one example. Proverbs 7.21 It's a reference here to the prostitute. Prostitute, it says of her in Proverbs 7.21, And with her much fair speech she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips she forced him. He goes after her straight away as an ox goes to the slaughter, as a fool to the correction of the stocks till a dart strike through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare, and he knows not that it is for his life. In another place, it's, it's called the door to hell. But that's deception. 
It's like the man who picked up a prostitute in L.A. years ago and he got her into the car and he began to kiss her, thought he was going to have a, a cheap trick for the night, some cheap thrills. As he began to kiss her, little did he know that he'd picked up the wrong prostitute and she had a razor blade hidden under her tongue. And as he began to kiss her, she began to slice the lips off of his face. He found out he'd been deceived and he real quick. The Bible says with the tongue they practice deceit. Man's heart is full of deceit, and the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.13, But evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived as the day draws near when Jesus is coming back. Then it says the poison of asps is under their lips. If, for anyone that would say man is basically good, Paul is shredding that argument. The poison of asps is under their lips. He's referring here to the adder snake, little short snake, deadly poisonous, that when it would pose to strike and move in to strike, the adder has folded up underneath in the top of his mouth his fangs. But when he goes to strike, the fangs flip down. There are sacks of poison up here in his jaws. And when he goes to bite, it squeezes the sacks of poison, and then the poison shoots down through the hollow fangs. He bites hold of you, and the poison is shot into your arm. It's probably what bit Paul on the island of Malta when they thought he was going to die. That's the picture God has of the human race and the mouth. Think about it. Think about your last argument. Think about your marriage arguments. Think about the poison of asps that's under the lips there's nobody that's exempt from this. This is the human race. And then, of course, the mouth is full of cursing, verse 14. Cursing and bitterness. And that is so true. One of the most shocking things to me is that people, when they want to really cuss or really swear, will take the name of God in vain. We use the name of our blessed Christ. You see, in the end, the mouth is full of cursing, cursing God. That's the human race. And so the conversation, let's go to the conduct. The conduct, their feet are swift to shed blood. Without question, the human race is a murderous race. Do you realize a study was done that showed that a baby born in one of America's 50 largest cities has almost a 2% chance of being murdered in his lifetime? That is to say that you are more likely, you and I, one of us, are more likely to be murdered in our lifetime than a soldier was to be killed in World War II. Think of that. Just walking down the street. A ship carrying 317 Chinese coolies in 1858 was wrecked on a reef in the South Pacific. The island appeared to be uninhabited, yet plentiful with food. Having no other choice, the crew put the coolies ashore and set out for help in a small boat. When they returned in a rescue vessel five months later, you know what they found? They found one Chinese was still alive, and that all that was left of the other 316 was a pile of bones and pigtails. Man is murderous. You know who the lady was with the most murders in history? Her name was Countess Elizabeth Bathory of Hungary. She was accused of killing 610 young girls. They found the names of every girl personally written with her own hand in her diary. 610. When the Bible says man is murderous, when it says he's not good, it's very serious. It is a picture of total depravity. 
It is a picture of destruction and misery which is in their ways, which the world is in that place today with all the plagues, diseases, endless wars, and so on. And when it says the way of peace they have not known, that has become more obvious in our day, I think, than ever. The 19th century evangelist Robert Haldane wrote this. He said, the most savage animals, think of this, the most savage animals do not destroy so many of their own species to appease their hunger as man destroys of his fellows to satiate his ambition, his revenge, or his greed. An animal will kill to eat. Man will kill for greed. He is a killer. He does not know the way of peace. You know why? Because the Bible says there is no peace for the wicked. Without God, there is no peace. Without the Prince of Peace, there is no peace. If you wonder why you don't have peace in your life, there could ever and always be only one answer. There's no Jesus. If there's no peace, there's no Jesus. Only with Jesus is there peace. So the condition, the conversation, the conduct. Finally, we come to the cause, which is very simple. If you look at verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's it. Let me ask you a question. When you drive through a 25-mile-an-hour zone, and you actually go 25 miles an hour, is it because you're so wonderful, so law-abiding? Or is it because you're looking in the rearview mirror? And you know that cops hide near schools, and they sneak up on you and get you. I would venture to say that most of us go 25 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone because we have a fear of the cop who's going to give us a ticket. Fear is a great deterrent. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It is also the end of sin. Why is this the picture of the human race? Because there's no fear of God before their eyes. You know what the fear of God is? It's a reverence for His love and His glory. Reverential awe. But that is not the end of it. It is also a healthy reverence for His holy reactions against sin. It's both. And so to reverence God is to fear God, to fear that if you live in sin, He will in His holiness react. It's also a wonderful awe of His goodness and glory and love in Christ. Both are part of the fear of God. Till you begin to fear God, your life will never change. Finally, the conviction, verse 19. He says, We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, that the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law, the Word of God, the work of God on your heart, it's all there to show you your great need for Jesus. Have you seen your great need for Jesus? If you don't see it after looking at this, if you could stand back and say, oh, I still think man is basically good, then open your eyes. You say, I still think I'm basically good. Open your eyes. You're not. You're a sinner. And the only way to be relieved of your guilt is the grace of God and Jesus Christ. If you've never come to Him, come to Him now, right where you are. Open your heart and say, God, I want forgiveness for my sin. I am a sinner. Ask Him to cleanse you now of your sin and your guilt. Ask for the blood of Jesus, which alone can cleanse your conscience to serve the living God. Go from this place today, clinging to Jesus to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, which alone can set you free. And he whom the Son sets free, you will be free indeed.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the truth, the truth that truly does make us free. I pray for anyone here today that doesn't know you, Lord, that you would overwhelm them by your Holy Spirit even now. Soften their heart, open their eyes, lift the blindness and save them, Lord. If you've never asked Jesus into your heart, just do it right now. Just say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse me from my sin. Save my soul. Give me eternal life. And I'll follow you forever. Give me the power of your Holy Spirit to walk with you, Lord, and I will. Just open your heart. Be honest with God. Come clinging to him today. He will save you. He will rescue you. In Jesus' name, Lord, we have studied these things and asked these things. Amen.